0: his bat on his shoulder And he tosses up his ball And the ball goes up and the ball comes down Swings his bat all the way around The world's so still you can hear the sound The baseball falls to the ground Now the little boy Doesn't say a word Picks up his ball he is undeterred. Says I- Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Sal Marinello. This is the Hot Corner with Coach Sal, episode 298 on the network. Uh, before we bring in Sal here, just want to say a special thank you to our audience, 50,000 plus now, 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices. We appreciate your support. Uh, because of you, we've been able to become the latest pod pod streaming network on iHeartRadio. You can continue to get us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, but we're flooding that that iHeart. So make sure after this show, you give Sal five stars, write some nice comments on under there because we're still battling the analytics of the podcast world, just like we do in baseball. And uh, we got our cup of coffee in the bigs and we want to stay right now. We made the 40 man we want to make sure we're sticking. We, we, we don't want to get that number off our back. They give the young guys 79 or 80-something. That tells you you're, you're ready to go back down. We want to get something in the in the low 20s and 30s for our, our number on the back. Um, Sal, welcome back to your show. Had a little different music today. I got a minor, a small story behind that song, if you want me to indulge. Go ahead. Yeah. We've been playing our patriotic songs. We'll get back to that as well. But uh, did a, did a uh, Brooks Robinson Hall of Famer, considered the greatest – defensive third baseman of all time. Some would argue the greatest third baseman of all time. Um, did a little story on on him on Facebook today. I had a, you know, as a, as a minor league baseball player, my, you know, I, I would always give my autograph away to anybody who wanted it. And my mother called me second year in, the, in uh, professional baseball and asked if I would sign two baseballs for my aunt, her twin sister. She was doing some banking business in Baltimore and um, was meeting with the president and one of their, either their board member, or consultant, whatever he was called. And they were both big baseball fans. And she was bragging about her nephew being me. And um, the consultant said that he had played a little baseball. And, you know, and I, I always think in my head, I always joke, I always, I always hear that. You know, everyone always says they've all got a story. So um, I sent the balls to her, autographed. And then like a week later, I got a package back in the mail and it was a note from her saying, thank you. And, uh, in there was another ball and she had told me before that the consultant was going to sign a ball for me, you know, it was kind of a nice trade. So, um, I opened it up. The note from her was wonderful. And I looked at the ball and it was Brooks Robinson. Wow. And, uh, you know, and the way he described himself was he played a little. Um, so we were doing, we were doing a little stat finder. I know before the show and, uh, Brooks Robinson, I I can't remember how many gold gloves he had. I think it was over 16. I'm not mistaken, but, um you know was durable at third base wasn't uh consumed with the weights that uh, our guys are nowadays and played every day played hard i mean he, he was one step in a dive to the to the to the uh third baseline and nothing got p- past his glove side so he was uh, phenomenal there durable a hall of famer I, from what i understand a, a wonderful young, a wonderful man from and was kind enough to Trade me two Dave D'Agostino baseballs for a Brooks Robinson.
1: That's pretty cool. Well, I, you know, one of the things I remember about him, and and it's it goes to this, uh, what let's call it core or baseline athleticism. I don't know if that's the right term, but I remembered him, you know, being able to go to his backhand side and just effortlessly get up and throw in one motion, and that's one of those motions that most movement patterns that the weight room will just totally destroy. You know the the concept the nonsense that you need to get down low and, and to get down low, you have to have a heavy weight on your back or lift a heavy weight to get there as in a deadlift or a squat, and you'll hear that rationale is totally ludicrous and my dave we've done this we've we've made pointed comments that someone in a in a front office or someone in charge of a team somewhere this is going to resonate with them that you're you're ruining guys and you're taking that ability away from them. And if they can, if they try to do it, that's when guys get hurt because the movement is at odds with what they're doing in the weight room. And th- these are things you don't see. You don't see guys like that. And, you know, I was not a Yankee fan as, as much as I was a, a fan of watching good baseball. And they had some good teams at that time. Craig Nettles was very similar to that. And he did those things too. And that was another guy – I looked at Brooks Robinson here where they said was 180. You know, I, I don't think Craig Nettles was as big as Brooks Robinson was, but they moved, and they moved efficiently, and then they, they moved effectively, and they did things that you don't really
0: see much anymore. Oh, they hit, they hit the ground too, but yeah. to, to, fall and, to fall, or not to fall, to, to be as aggressive and dive and land on the ground like that so many times, nowadays guys would do that. They'd be out. for They'd be on the 10-day DL playing as much as they but they made it a part and you it's you know we we talk about kids going outside and playing they knew how to dive and not just dive effectively but dive with the purpose of getting back up and not not uh and being able to make the next play well and one of the
1: guys I played with I, one of my classmates guy Johnny Adams great athlete I remembered you know when we would play baseball on our own we'd practice that stuff uh, you know I I was a catcher I would practice the Johnny Bench kind of posture and hand behind the back and the quick step up out and try to replicate what he did. That was who I patterned myself after. And Johnny, we used to hit balls down the line and he would position himself. So he had to dive to his backhand side, get up and make the throw. And I can't tell you how many times he did that in the game. And it's because he practiced it. Yeah. You know, and because we saw it. So I don't know. If you don't see it, you're not going to practice it.
0: Yeah, guys aren't doing
1: that now. In fact, I yeah, was watching into his, you know, into his, uh, into his late thirties. Dave uh, Brooks was playing over 150 games a year as late as when he was uh, his. He play- He basically played in over 144 games in every year but two. One of them was the last. Looks like his last full time year. But he was playing in 156, 153 games all the way through his his thirties into his late thirties.
0: Yeah, there was no load management back then, which was nice. It's, it's refreshing and his death, obviously sad. It, it allows us it to reflect on just what kind of player he was and what that era was like too.
1: Well, and it just means we're getting older too, which. Does, yeah.
0: But I, I've got only, I only, I'm not an autograph collector. I've never been. And uh, that's the one ball I have on my shelf. Brooks Robinson, right next to the Brooks Robinson. I think it's a second year card. Um, I put that picture on Facebook uh, today with the story. Yeah. That's the sure. that we played. And then I do have two other articles. One is Bo Jackson. He signed a college baseball jersey for my son Tanner, and that hangs up. And then reluctantly, I was a Celtic fan growing up. Pat Riley came back to Schenectady where we both grew up. You know, obviously we're different generations, but they redid the Schenectady courts, the basketball courts in honor of him, named it the Pat Riley courts. And I had just won my third straight uh, NBA Pepsi hot shot, my third straight state title, and I was going to fly to Los Angeles to shoot at halftime of a Laker game, which he was coaching at the time. And um, I did not want to meet him because I was a Celtics fan. That's how diehard we were back then. We we didn't want teen guys traded like they are now. We saw Lillard get traded. And my dad said, you'll be a Laker fan for a day. And then, but I had his rookie card. So my, my godfather, who is now a senator there, he got him to sign it. So I do have a Pat Riley signed rookie card and a Brooks Robinson ball and a bow jersey. So those are the three. Autographs I have, uh, but I don't. I'm not a big autograph collector. In that no, week. I don't have
1: any autographs. Never, no. never got into it. Uh, I think my brother has a Hank Aaron ball from actually back in the in the day when uh, he was in the home run chase. So if it's really yeah. his signature, it might be worth something. And, yeah. and you know, we talk about the training and how we don't see guys do the same things as generations past. And we had a little discussion before we started the show today about how there's no critical assessment of the athletic development. And I'm not going to call it strength and conditioning because that's such a misnomer and it, it it kind of conjures up images of things that really don't have much to do with baseball. So I like to use the word athletic development because that's what we're doing at the young level, at the young levels, younger levels, you're looking to develop athletes and you're always looking to develop athleticism, whether you're a 35 a year old, in the, in the midst of your golden years, you know, or a 30 year old who's still at the peak or a kid in college trying to get better. You could always get better. So we're we're talking about this lack of uh, critical assessment in the athletic development programs and how in other fields you see this happen all the time, a reevaluation. And I, well, I, you, I think
0: you I, were watching a movie recently, you were saying you're watching a movie and, and, uh, and listening to it on book two. And that kind of got you thinking about this. Share that. I think that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I
1: I watched the movie Oppenheimer and I was pretty familiar with him through, through some other books and uh, I've read and listened to. And after reading, looking at the movie and then I was listening to the book and the book obviously is going to give you more details than the movies do. Although I will say, I think the comparatively the, the movie very faithful to the book, which is a Pulitzer prize winning book. And They're talking about these theoretical physicists and what they did. And my thought was here you had a a field that was as traditional conservative, not conservative, but as traditional that dealt with truly the laws of nature in physics. And yet you had a group of of scientists that were in this theoretical realm and they were doing things and, and making theories and coming up with theories that they had no idea if they were correct or not, but ultimately what they did wound up in the creation of the bomb. And I'm thinking we have a field in strength and conditioning athletic development where we have a rash and an epidemic of injuries, whether it's football, whether it's basketball, whether it's baseball, and there's no critical assessment reevaluation being done. As a matter of fact, if you try to bring this up to the status quo, you get shouted down by both the keepers of the status quo and those who march in lockstep with what they're told by their quote betters, And it's just amazing to me that you have professionals doing the same garbage that was done 100 or 75 years ago. Actually, I wouldn't say that. That's unfair. That was started, starting to be done 50 years ago, which has started us to the road of ruin. And they're, they're never re- critically reassessing what they've
0: done. If if you were in that room or you got a chance to uh, who who would be your audience in that room you would obviously need owners. Well yeah, you you need someone who really, you know,
1: I'm lucky and I've had athletes on the in the in the lacrosse space that are in a position to do what they want because they've seen it all. They played division 1, they've had strength coaches and seen what they do and realized it doesn't work. So I've been able to make changes, drastic changes and and I think help people in a way that redefines what the strength coach should do. The strength coach is not there to make someone bigger, faster, stronger. That's nonsense. And if it, it goes to what we spoke about the last two weeks about the comparison of what Jesse Owens did versus what Usain Bolt did. And when you make allowances for the technology in both the track, the shoes, the starting block, and the timing equipment, the difference between those two gentlemen, if you look at their performances, is basically the blink of an eye. So you're 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 in a position now where we have to totally change that and can you change it from the top I think it's very difficult you would have to get an organization that was very committed to it and was willing to throw everything out and start from scratch and watch these players be better just because it's addition by subtraction
0: what if you're I mean like in lacrosse we talked about Tom Schreiber uh, before the show and certainly want to give a shout out to him that's a that's a he is the he's the epitome of lacrosse right now. He's the golden boy and he's he's a uh, a client of yours and he's turned in a not just a third straight, but he's had a third straight miraculous season in this league, but he's had a career with gold medals and whatnot. Um, talk to him a little bit about what you're working with him on and but also who would be the Tom Schreiber in baseball if you got to pick a guy and said, I'm gonna change baseball uh, with this particular guy who I would judge? You? yeah. Yeah, because you've got the guy with
1: all the athleticism in the world. He doesn't ever need to sniff a weight room. Uh, and by weight room, I'm talking literally the lifts that these traditional lifts, lifts that these guys do. Uh, just to give you a little background on Tom, Tom is 31, 30, has had a long career. This year, in he played in the NLL, which is called Box Lacrosse, which is indoor. Uh, it's played on basically a hockey rink with turf. And the goalies are padded out like when you see the sumo guys at the halftime show that kind of do it for fun. And so it's a completely different game than field lacrosse, a lot more contact. So Tom played in the PLL, I'm sorry, in the NLL, and was one of the top five players in the league, was in the running for MVP in that league. And that's almost unheard of where you would take a guy who's known for field lacrosse, which is what most people recognize lacrosse as being, and making that transition with nothing other than he's going and playing there to be a top player. Then he started in the in the pro lacrosse season, the PLL, and they had a break during the PLL and had the world championships and he's captain of the team USA. They won a gold medal in that. And for the most part it's USA and Canada, but it's still very competitive. So they won this year with Tom as the captain and then in the in the PLL, he won a, a championship and also won the leadership award. The midfielder of the year award and the league MVP for the third time. So here's a guy that is considered one of the older guys in the league, and yet he's had a, his best year in a while and in a long time, and as good as any year he's ever had. And and that's after again a full year of never having a rest. So what we what we're able to do is puzzle piece his workouts and his training and his recovery with his, his competition schedule. So the concept of him being off-season or in-season is almost inconsequential because he's never off-season. He's always in-season. So we've had to manipulate all the variables, and he's healthy. I mean, of course you're going to get banged up a little bit when you play a contact sport, but he had the winning goal in the championship game on Sunday and looks as fresh as any rookie would look. So, you know, he, and it's a tribute to his hard work, but I think we've hit on a formula that would be suitable, for, totally suitable for baseball. Yeah.
0: But what part of this formula is it's not cookie cutter? You're, you're you're you have intimate knowledge of his game. You have intimate knowledge of him in terms of because he's not going to look the same from one game to the next. I'm sure you're trying to make it as, as similar as possible for him. But you know he's a human. Um, what's what's the secret sauce?
1: Well, I think it's there's a there's a certain there's more of an art. I was going to say there's a certain element of art, but this is what I think this field should be is more of an art art. Our, our goal should be to make them reliable and resilient and durable in the face of all the things they, they have to contend with and not get them to lift more or sp- spend more time in the gym that has nothing to do with their performance. A lot of the times people use the high-level guys as the justification for doing this stuff, not realizing you could do almost anything in the weight room with one of these best athletes, and they're going to be good at it. You know, especially football is great for that. You have a stud athlete who's the fastest guy on the field. Of course he's going to be the best in all the other lifts because straight-ahead speed determines pretty much everything. Straight-ahead speed, vertical jump, broad jump – those three things are going to tell you who your best athletes are.
0: Yeah. And so kind of shifting to Aaron Judge, let's use him as the the Tom Shriver of baseball. They're about the same age, too. Um, Judge is obviously a, a specimen, six seven plus. He probably weighs 280, but he's long and lean. Um, what would be the things that, from a baseball standpoint, somebody of that size, stature, would have to contend with that you would address if you were well, his guy?
1: I'm not a big believer in that. The, the size matters with, with with being concerned about elements of their performance i just don't believe that i i think you whether you're five foot nine or six foot eight or six foot seven whatever he is you have to train properly you swing the bat the same elements of the of the bats uh, of swinging the bat are whether it's you a guy your size or a guy Aaron judge's size so the, the thing we've talked about, and we talk, I talked about this a lot with Kevin, and I think we did talk about it on the baseball roundtable, is that the training has to mirror what they're doing, especially with their, their swing. I mean, I know the swing mechanics, it's like the golf golf swing mechanics. It's very specific. So if you're doing things to train that aren't really in keeping with the elements of that swing, then you're hurting yourself. And from what I understand, Aaron Judge's hitting instructor has a very specific method of teaching, and, and you need to be able to support that method in your training. If you're doing the same training everyone else is doing, but you have this very unique batting style, that, that's not going to work. It's actually you're working against yourself. And, and you know, it, it all starts, it, you, you touched on it. It all starts with having a customized approach from the beginning. So when you look at these universities and these teams, everyone's doing the same program with the same weights and the goal of lifting the heaviest, it's it's baloney because you have all 40 different guys or 24 different guys or 15 different girls on a basketball team, whatever it is, women on a basketball team. They're all, and I know that. I've I've done that at the division one level. I had to take the time to individualize things. Now, when you're stripping out all the nonsense, it's very easy to to individualize because you're not doing a million different things. That's hyperbole. You're not doing thirty different things. Even if you could narrow it down to six, eight, maybe even ten core things that most of these athletes need to do, it's very easy to customize it.
0: Yeah, I uh, I would I would agree with that, and you know, and you mentioned the hitting coach for Judge. He's got he has a He's got a little bit of a barrel bump. Um, he's fixed it a little bit more this year, where it's a little bit more on the plane in the ball. But uh, yeah, it wreaks havoc on on the backside, the hips. The um, it puts the obliques in a, in an awkward situation. But again, if you're training for that, then you can become stronger in the hitting motion, or at least pr- at least support it. A hundred
1: percent. And I'm not here to. I don't. I've you know on social media years ago, people took it as me endorsing or not endorsing a specific style of hitting, I don't care. My point is whether you agree or disagree with how his hitting coach pre, uh, proceeds, you have to have a training program that complements that. You can't be doing – and I'm, you could speak to it better than I can, but if there was a, a way that someone could teach swinging that was at odds with this particular method, then you certainly can't train those two players the same way.
0: Yeah. And the point that you make uh, and that we, we've made on the show is that a lot of the injuries are happening because either the two don't match up uh, or people are trying to supplement getting stronger as a, as a hitter or even a thrower by doing something other than or prioritizing something other than hitting and throwing the right way. Correct. That's where the injuries happen. And, and we talked about, look at Otani. Otani, the
1: best player in the world, does things that no one else can do and he's fallen victim to the same injury scourge that has affected the the average player, the other superstars, Oblique and Tommy John, Oblique and Tommy John. The, the reason for that is the demands of the game are not being addressed in their training. And we've talked about this too, the concept of chasing velocity and the change it's made to the pitching motion and how it's, Changed it shifted the stress to different parts of the body. On top of chasing velocity, you have this toxic mix. <clears throat> we we've shared pictures of I think it was Dennis Leonard that we got from Will and I've always been you know you look at Seaver and Ryan with the back leg drive and they land they they're pushing pushing off and that front leg is bent versus what they do today where they post on that leg and. The body rotates over it and it transfers all the stress to the elbow. And on top of it, you're trying to throw it as hard as you can. I, in my opinion, that's the recipe for disaster.
0: Yeah. They call it catapulting. Rooney gets into that uh, on his podcast. Jim Rooney does where at the end of the throwing motion, whether you're a drop and drive guy like Tom Seaver, you look at old pictures of Satchel Page where he was a little bit straighter on his backside. Um, when they finish, there's a linear path to the plate and a rotational path, which should be finished off by your upper body, your chest uh, coming parallel to the ground um, at the end. And these guys that are having arm issues are what what Jim refers to as catapulting, where they're almost using, they're using the arm in the, uh, to, to create that force to come over the leg as opposed to doing the opposite, where the strong parts of your body should be leading that arm out in front of you. And the arm, so if you make it like a, like a bill at a restaurant... Your body pays the bill. The arm is just the tip. It pays the tip at the end. So and they're doing it in reverse here. Um, yeah. And
1: I, I think it's, you could also look at how the arm injuries went from your rotator cuff to the elbow. I mean, that, the, the, it, I remember when every major, most major injuries suffered by pitchers was the rotator cuff. I don't know the last time I've heard that. I'm sure there are still. But you get more elbow forearm problems now than we're getting shoulder problems. The lat is, uh, uh, we talked about the lat, the lat's a stabilizer. So if that lat is getting stressed, it's because it's overused. It's overused. And that's because I think it's the it's the motion and the chasing the velocity. And again, what you're doing in the weight room.
0: Yeah. And you, know, you would love to have a meeting of the minds, getting them together, uh, a la the Oppenheimer movie where you get the, the best and the brightest challenging each other. I think that's healthy to do. It's what we need in that industry. Uh, there, and there needs to be efficacy and there needs to be testing. And, uh, but we see that across the board in our world, don't we? Not just with baseball, with uh, certain medical situations as well.
1: Well, that's a smooth transition there because we were talking about the new boosters that have been pushed out the door here and there were, there was no testing for e- efficacy or safety and uh, what uh, most people don't realize there's no safety testing and there's no trials for the flu vaccine. It's kind of a dartboard, a dart and a dartboard approach. And if you look at the data on the efficacy of the flu shot over time, it really has not been successful at all. It might make you protect or might give you protection against one specific strain but it certainly doesn't protect you against the wide spectrum that you're going to face in the real world, which is really what's happened with the COVID vaccine. The The spike protein has basically changed people's immune systems so that it might be good against one strain, which is now no longer even in existence, but you're not protected against the other strains. So, the, and, and again, that's what's happened with this new booster that's come out. There's been no testing. I believe they... There's been no human testing and it was done short term in, I think, rabbits and or mice. And uh, they didn't have great results in that either. But nevertheless, they're recommending it. And you're seeing recommendations for age six months and up. No place in the world except here is recommending that for children. No place. So it's kind of scary, but that's that. And and. It it goes to something else I was going to bring up, but there's never been a worse time to be sick or unhealthy than right now, because nobody in the profession is geared to making a real change to people's behaviors. They're just throwing drugs, medications at at you. So if you're sick, and if you're whether it's you're overweight, whether you have certain autoimmune issues. Whether you have diabetes, you're you're not going to be made better by the profession. You're going to just
0: be medicated. Yeah, you sent that that there was I mean that all encompassing post. Uh, Dana White, I think you sent it to me. Yeah, your Instagram. Uh, you know, sh- share that a little bit. He he kind of hit on what you were just talking about.
1: Well, he you know he had all he had certain conditions that they had no answers for uh, addressing except to give him medication, and then he went out and did research on his own and was able to ameliorate, how about that for a word, uh, a lot of the conditions by diet and supplements. And, and he's not the only guy. Joe Rogan has spoken to that. Uh, I could speak to that with with certain issues with allergies and, and uh, digestive tract issues and sleeping, that a change in diet, a change in habits, and some over-the-counter supplements that you can research. It's, it's, it's all out there. And you know what? I would recommend people do that now because I think we're going to see – In the very recent, in the very near future, we're going to see some of these supplements being pulled off the market. I think we're going to see challenges by the pharmaceutical industry to the FDA, who are basically the FDA has been captured by pharmaceutical industry. They're going to take some of these things off the market, claiming that well, we have to do safety testing now. Uh, That will be the ultimate irony that they'll be concerned about what has become de facto safety tested by millions of people using these substances for tens of years. And now now they're going to use that. And I bet you they're going to pull those things off the market. And those will be in the purview of the big pharmaceutical companies, I think, in the very near future.
0: For example, like what, what, were you, what are you talking well,
1: about? Well, I, I have a cocktail of some magnesium forms. We talked about it a little bit. I think you're going to see with the mad rush to, to use the magnesiums for a variety of issues – there's going to be some movement to by Big Pharma or it might be one of their captured representatives in in the Senate or in the House that's going to say, you know what, I think we need to pump the brakes here and have studies done to determine if they really do what they're advertised to do.
0: Okay, so a little, little irony with that. Yeah, magnesium, I'm a fan of too. Any, anything on the table of elements is natural. So just for our audience there, it's uh, – I use I use uh, colloidal silver uh, quite a bit. It's, uh, I use magnesium. Actually, I my my deodorant's magnesium. Believe it or not, and uh, yeah, there's the- all, there's all
1: substances that yeah. now you know again the, the the counter to that Dave is there's some natural substances. Not some. There are natural substances that are poisonous. So natural in its in itself doesn't mean anything. And something that's not even poison in the proper amount can be mis overused or misused to have a toxic outcome, which is what the drug companies and other people did with ivermectin. You know, they, they purposely overdosed the subjects in the studies to get a toxic reaction so they could say ivermectin was not useful against COVID. Uh, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but that is that information is out there. Anyone who uh, has any doubt, you could reach out to us and we'll point you in the right direction because it's, it's undeniable. So we're, we're at a point now where you don't want to be sick. You don't want to be unhealthy. If you are on medications, again, not something that is keeping you alive. By no means do we have the position that pharmaceuticals across the board are bad, but we're at a position now where most things that could be treated, many things that could be treated with diet, exercise, and some lifestyle issue changes can be addressed without prescription drugs, without the whole litany of side effects that they throw at you when you take these. So that, that's my, my point here. Don't You don't want to be sick now because unless you take interest and make the effort to get yourself better, no one's going to do that for you and certainly not the medical profession.
0: Yeah, I think that's what we, what we say on all of our shows, especially with, with your show here with The Hot Corner. We're going to give you a lot of good information. Uh, we're gonna be passionate about what we give you, but please, even with us, do your own research. Be your own educator in this stuff. Don't just blindly listen to commercials. Where you know, here we got here we got our the greatest tight end in our game right now, Travis Kelsey, pushing this stuff. So, um, well,
1: one more thing, I will say, just personally, I loved I love bourbon. I love a gin and tonic. I love the cocktail culture, and I'd have you know two or three drinks Thursday night, weekend, go to parties. And I slept like crap. And last summer, last spring, I decided to make a change and see how it would affect me. And it had an unbelievable effect on me, both with my body composition and my sleep cycle. My sleep has gotten incredibly better because I was taking some of these sleep aid supplements that were supposed to help and they were marginally effective when i did not have the regular drinks and again i wasn't going out and getting hammered it was two drinks in in a in a comfortable setting watching a ball game but multiple times on a weekend and i that affects my sleep affected my sleep so for my trade off of do i want to really have that comfortable sleep or do i want to enjoy what i enjoyed about the drinking to me it was a no brainer and I could still go out, and I'll have one or two once in a while. But the accumulative effect of that has way more of an effect on you and on your sleep than you can imagine until you stop for any good period of time and really see the difference it can make.
0: That's a good point. It's good when we can personalize it too. It, it uh, gives better examples. Well, I know we we were going to do a short one tonight. We're a little over a half hour now, but That's- wanted to wanted to throw Dion at you. We're talking. Um, You know, he's he's all over the place right now. He's he's, uh, you know, in terms of generating millions of dollars for uh, Colorado uh, State, he's he's crushing it out there. But, uh, you know, it's he's very polar in his approach. So what's your what's your take on on him? Oh,
1: I think, you know, uh, we're we're in a hype machine society. So people want to hype everything. So that's fine. I get that. And when you look at what he did, he took. He had a very good team at Jackson State. Now, what my my belief is, this is just, a, again, my belief, the bottom, the bottom half of most major conferences, the teams are not very good. And that's going to get worse as time goes on for a variety of reasons. But for now, just accept that as part of my argument. I'd love to get deeper into that next week. So what he had at Jackson State was he had a bunch of guys that were very good football players, great athletes, couldn't get in to the bigger, better schools. And Dion is a very personable guy. I, I would see why young kids today would want to play for him. So he had at Jackson State a team that if he played the schedule he's playing this year, my bet it would be pretty close. And what happened is when they went up against a top team in Oregon, that was what's going to happen. You know, so you have that illusion that he was going to turn this into a top 20 team overnight. And really what he did was, he had a good showing against TCU. No one knows how good they are. They lost most of their guys. They beat a, a lousy Nebraska team, who's one of that, who's one of those bottom half of a good conference teams that will never get back to where they were. Again, my opinion. I I root for Nebraska. I have a buddy here who's a big Nebraska fan. I root for them, but they're never getting back to what they were. And they barely beat Colorado State, who's been terrible for a long time. And then they went against Oregon, and they got shown for what they are. There's nothing surprising about that to me. And let's see what happens when they play USC and UCLA. And I don't know if they have Washington, but to me, that's all this is. This is a reflection of the talent level. Now, I think he has a very good chance to get the kids that might've been going to Georgia and Alabama and Clemson, especially if Alabama and Clemson are going to slip like they've done. Uh, I think just like music, musical tastes change. I think what kind of a coach kids want to play for is going to change, and I think you could see Dion take advantage of that, and down the line, definitely turn them into a top twenty team. But let's see how they handle the adversity of getting their butts kicked a couple of times at least during this season, and see how that this group responds.
0: Yeah, i, I I've enjoyed how he's. He's implementing discipline in these kids in terms of, I listened to something he said about dress code and, you know, this is, it's a uniform and that's what it means. Uniform, you wear things a certain way. You don't wear earrings. Um, you know, your pants are a certain way. He goes, cause if you go into UPS, you wear their uniform the way they tell you. If you go into wall street, you don't get to come any way you want. So some of his messages to me are, are wonderful. I'm glad he's got the the wherewithal and he has the, the standing to to uh, impress upon kids that, that those things that have to do with discipline. But I, I got asked a question. I didn't, I didn't look at it critically. I just kind of just accepted it as it was. Uh, like I said, it's a hype machine, so I don't get too high, too low. But I got asked a question on Facebook. I, I'm going to answer it tomorrow. It said, uh, how would you recruit against Dion? And so I started looking at it from a different perspective. And one of them was the, like the, the post-game press conference he had the other day when they got beat. I thought he came in and handled it well. But he said things like, you better get me while I'm down now because this is the worst we're ever going to be. And the things that he said, you're going to, you have to get me. I I paid attention to that singular possessive pronoun, um, because this is the worst we're going to be. Um, he recruited 56 kids off the transfer portal this year. That would make me alert as a player. That's going there as a, as a freshman ever you're going to get replaced again next year. He's going to refurbish another load of transfers and another load of transfers. Um, I would just have them pay attention without talking about it. Just make them aware of singular possessive pronouns or singular pronouns when a coach is talking. The the other thing I'd have them look at is, again, without making it specific to him, is his resume. Um, I admire his resume, how he started from the bottom and climbed his way up. He didn't do the privilege of, I'm just going to start in the Pac-12. Started at the youth level, just climb. But if you follow the lineage of his resume... He follows his son. His, it follows his son everywhere, the The, the quarterback. Uh, and to me, what, what are we to believe that when this kid goes to the NFL, that he's still going to be coaching college football?
1: That, that be- yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I think a lot of the things you said – well, first of all, I something I learned from you is don't recruit against the other guy. Recruit yourself. So I think that's that's my first response. My second response is what you did say, though, and – that the criticism about the transfer portal I love reading the fan uh, websites about the specific teams I went to the Clemson cuz my son went to Clemson I always rooted for Clemson that they are unhappy that Dabo Sweeney doesn't go to the transfer portal because he's trying to be loyal to the guys he brought in and yet that might not be the best way to win and and, and when they lost to Duke that was the big criticism Duke that is one of the more prestigious universities went to the transfer portal and in a couple of years has kind of turned it around. Yeah, they're good. So the transfer portal is, I think, here to stay. And I think all kids are now going to have to recognize that. And it just is going to force them to not take anything for granted when they get to wherever it is they decide to go. Yeah.
0: So, and people don't, I mean, we talk about the NIL and we can close after after this. And the NIL is Money. These kids are getting paid. The kid Caleb Williams is making $7 million a year at USC. He may not go to the NFL draft next year. We know he'll probably be the number one pick. If he doesn't like who he's going to get drafted by, he'll stay at USC and he'll make $11 million next year if he stays. And so, you know, we laugh because these kids were getting paid before. It just now is legal and, and publicized. And the, se- the second thing is the transfer portal. These kids had the power to leave before because all scholarships are one year renewable. It says it right in there. I signed a million of them in my time as a coach. They're one year renewable. The, the, the coaches always employed that uh, power, but the players never realized that they had the power too. And I don't like where this is going with the transfer portal and the NIL. It's, it's, I, I like the fact that kids can get paid. I like the fact that kids, if, if a coach leaves, they can leave, but oh my gosh, it is, as, as you mentioned with, I mean, we're, it's an overreaction to because there's no there, there's no legislation on it. I'm against over legislation in baseball, you know, where they do all the rules. But God, I wish the NCAA would would stop making rules and just running away. I mean, it's it's like it's the Wild West out there.
1: Yeah, I think we've gotten to a point where you're not getting that back. I think we're stuck with this, and it. You know what? If what so real quick, and then we'll wrap. If your kid is playing college and he's making eight mil. What are you telling him if he can make an 11 the next year or go pro? What's your advice?
0: For Caleb Williams, I would depend on who's going to draft him. I'd say stay. Yeah, if he's going to go to Chicago or he's named three or four places. Shoot, Eli Manning and John Elway did it.
1: I'd stay anyway. I I would stay because you're going to get the 11 mil. You're going to save wear and tear on your body. You're going to be in a position of dominance, both physically and from a performance standpoint. And you're minimizing the risk. You, you, anyone could get hurt anytime, but I would think if you can make 11 million by playing college and having the college life, stay in college, especially if you're USC.
0: Less less contact, less less big bodies. like it in the NFL, and when you're on a bad team, I mean, assey's co- Andrew Luck, case in point. I mean, his his career got shortened tenfold. You know, he didn't. He's he's running away from 350 pound linemen that can run just as fast as him. So, but, uh, well, Doug, th- thanks for doing a late night. This is a late night, uh, Thursday show for the audience here. We're taping late here. Um, appreciate Sal coming on board to give the audience the last dose of the hot corner for the week. We'll be definitely be back next week. Anything you want to leave the audience with Sal today?
1: No, I think, uh, we we'll, we gave them a lot to think about in short term and, um, just ruminate. We'd love to hear about opinions about what we're giving out. So, uh, that would be the one thing I'd say. I'd like to hear some feedback.
0: Yeah, let's let's reach out to Sal on social. He's active on Instagram. Uh, connect with him there, and then uh, please at the end of the show go to whatever you stream it on. Give us five stars here. Make great comments about Sal. Help us battle the po- battle the podcast world analytics because we want to stay in the show here. We got we streamed on iHeart now. We want to we not just stay but we want to excel. We want to climb the ladder. So up to over fifty thousand subscribers. Seventy-four countries. We're continue to provide you with great content like we do every week. And Sal, thanks so much for a great show here at the Hot Corner.
1: Thanks, Dave. Thanks for doing this late night.
0: No problem. No problem. I enjoy our conversations. Have a good night. And uh, episode two ninety-eight here, Real Voices of the Game. We'll see you next week. That's strike three. Now it's supper time, and his mama calls. Little boy starts home with his bed and ball. Says, I am the greatest.
1: That is.